Hi, it's Mike. It's the Saturday show wherein we bring you one of the best interviews of all time and one of the best interviews of the past week. Although, this week we'll bring you one of my best interviews all year. That's just how the calendar broke. By which I mean, I hosted one week of shows this year, guest hosts filled in the week before. And I'm going to bring you a show from early in the week where I talked about Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, doling out the charm. A lot of calumny has been visited upon Mr. McCarthy. I just think he's doing the best he can, given that he was born and has learned to operate throughout his life without a spine. He's, in fact, in many ways a hero. But if you want to really talk about hero, I'm going to bring you back into the fairly distant past. Well, the not-so-distant past, 2015, is when I did the interview. But the subject of the interview was Mr. Henry Clay, the seventh Speaker of the House. The Great Compromiser, which maybe wouldn't get you such pats on the back today. But Henry Clay, as chronicled by his biographer, Harlow Giles Unger, was the subject in 2015. And as you listen to the interview, I want you to think about how we're describing Mr. Clay's character, Mr. Clay's strategy, the obstacles in front of Henry Clay, and compare them. Cast your mind ahead to everything we've been talking about Kevin McCarthy. Quite a contrast, quite a legacy. You can see why Kevin McCarthy wanted to be Speaker of the House. Henry Clay once did it. He's a great guy. But I'm just sensing a little uh, disparate disparity in the characters uh, and the mm, fundamental resolve of the gentlemen involved. I start 2023 fresh from a trip to the fourth most populous Portuguese-speaking country on the face of the earth. Can you name it? I start questioning my own wisdom. Having ceded the chair to such exalted journalists and newsmen as Ray Suarez, Bob Garfield, and Camille Foster, either I am confident in my own abilities or deluded that you wouldn't notice that those guys are very loquacious. I start with a touch of the COVID, what can you do? But as a man of considerable importance, delayed but undeniable importance, once told us, You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. That was Kevin McCarthy, whose dad died of cancer at 58. That's how he finished. What the hell does that prove? It's not how you start, it's not how you finish, it's the choices you make along the way. Kevin McCarthy chose to compromise all the way down. And so on the 15th ballot, he was elected speaker after promising who knows what to any Republican who objected to anything about his candidacy, from his willingness to work with Democrats, to his insufficient loyalty to Trump, to the cut of his jib, to the scope of his job. Yeah, 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 it was in fact all unprecedented since the 1800s. It sure was a sign of weakness. He's in an all but untenable position, having gained power by ceding so much of it. But as Camille said on this show, we are supposed to have a budget delivered on time, and we haven't since 1998. So the speaker fight was not really unique. It was just very noticeable dysfunction, memorialized in 14 sets of distinct failure-type discrete nodes of dysfunction. Congress not acting smoothly or adequately, that's just the atmosphere. All those failed votes were distinct strikes of heat lightning derived from 
the atmosphere. Woodrow Wilson wasn't nominated for president until the 43rd ballot of the nominating convention, James Garfield on the 36th, and those weren't even the longest. President's a more important position than speaker. Sometimes these things take time, and sometimes the fact that those things take time do portend of chaos to come. I predict we will get our fair share of that, but the one area that I've heard the most concern about is the debt ceiling. I hate the debt ceiling fight. It's a ridiculous tradition where we actually allow someone the option of defaulting on past spending. But the debt ceiling has become a leverage point for the exact kind of nihilist Republican who damned the first 1.166 dozen McCarthy ballots. Here's my analysis and the good news. I don't think the debt ceiling will be held up because I think the dynamics of that upcoming vote are quite different from the dynamics of what we just saw. There are 223 total House Republicans. So the possibility of getting a Democrat to join them in voting for a speaker was nil. McCarthy could only afford to lose five votes to become speaker. But with the debt ceiling, the calculation works in reverse. Assuming all Democrats want to fund it, and not to fund it and cause economic catastrophe, you would need five Republicans to join them as the caucus of the clinically sane. I would look to the 28 Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus. I would look at the 35 Republicans who voted to found the January 6th Commission. Yeah, a lot of them are gone, Kinziger, Cheney, Herrera, Butler, but over a dozen, maybe 20 still remain. There's Dan Newhouse, David Valadeo, who voted to impeach Trump the second go-around. There's former Air Force General and just guest Don Bacon, who is extremely critical of the McCarthy antagonists. The votes are out there. That's not to say it's easy, just getting the sentiment to the floor, the sentiment that uh, maybe we should honor our past debts, that is a hurdle, and the hurdle has been seemingly raised from high school level to steeplechase level based on what McCarthy gave away and who he placed on the rules committee. And there's an amendment process that's going to be more complicated than it ever was. It'll take a lot of time. But basic, the basic fact is the dynamics of this speaker vote was that the majority of Congress did not want Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. All the Democrats, enough of the Republicans. The dynamics of an upcoming debt ceiling default is that most members of Congress will not want to default on the debt ceiling, and that's really important. So I don't expect to hear the following sentiment expressed the moment it comes up for a vote. That was easy, huh? I never thought we'd get up here. (laughs) But we didn't expect to hear that from the mouth of Kevin McCarthy, and that's whose mouth we heard it from. Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We'll get there. We'll get there with the debt ceiling. But don't worry, there will be a good deal of angst drama and at least a mini C-SPAN ratings bump before we arrive. If you know one thing about Henry Clay, you probably know his appellation, the Great Compromiser. Think of what that phrase would do to a politician of today. Think of how damning it would be. Well, the phrase, the Great Compromiser, cuts a couple of ways. And in fact, Henry Clay's life, though 
underexamined and perhaps unfairly reduced to just being the great compromiser also contain many, many different strands. Writing about Henry Clay, America's greatest statesman, so you know what his thesis is, is Harlow Giles Unger. Mr. Unger is a former distinguished visiting fellow at George Washington's Mount Vernon. He's written 24 books, including 11 biographies of America's founding fathers. His latest is Henry Clay. Hello, Mr. Unger. How do you do? I'm well. So you've written so much about founding fathers, but you call Henry Clay the greatest statesman. So not a founding father, but why is he the greatest statesman? The United States was built on compromise. The Declaration of Independence was a compromise. Half the people who signed it uh, didn't want independence. They wanted autonomy and self-government, but not. they wanted to stay British. Right. Uh, the Constitution was a compromise between uh, southern states and northern states, rural interests and urban interests. Uh, our, our first government uh, after the Constitution had to compromise all the way. Washington was a great compromiser and kept Southern and Northern interests uh, together. From that point on, the government survived until the Civil War because of five great monumental compromises engineered by Henry Clay. Okay, who, so let's tick them off for the historical record. Go ahead. Well, the first one was in 1820, the Missouri Compromise. Uh, again, uh, the, the nation was about to split up. Uh, the Southerners were uh, about to break off from the Northerners. Uh, Missouri had been part of the Louisiana Territory and applied for statehood. And so many Southerners with their slaves had moved into Missouri that Missouri was going to become a state as a slave state. And that would have given the Southern slave states a majority in the Senate. They would have passed a law mandating the legalization of slavery in the entire Union. The North was having none of it. Uh, they threatened to break off with the South, and the nation would have split. Uh, Henry Clay at the time, like his president, James Monroe, had a vision of the United States growing into this great empire stretching from sea to shining sea, becoming the most prosperous nation on earth with all of its resources. And now the South wanted to split off, which would have divided us into two, possibly three small nations, uh, militarily impotent. Uh, the great powers of the day, Spain, France, or Britain, yeah. would have moved in. And in retrospect, because of who we are now, the the stuff that happened seems inevitable, but it wasn't. It was a real possibility that oh, the U.S. could fracture. Absolutely. Uh, Henry Clay looked for a compromise. He searched, uh, unlike many of our more recent speakers of the House, he searched for a way to uh, find common interests uh, to keep the nation together, no matter how unhappy they may be, but to keep the union together. Well, just at that time, Maine wanted to split off from Massachusetts. Here was the opportunity, uh, link Maine's ac uh, accession to statehood to Missouri's, uh, the one with no restrictions on either one. The one would come in as a free state. The other would come in as a slave state. The balance of power in the Senate and the House would have remained the same. And that's exactly what happened. He held the union together. Four more compromises over the next 30 years mm -hmm. accomplished the same thing. It held the union together. Meanwhile, two new generations grew up and he was able, with Monroe's help, to begin uh, establishing what he called the American system. 
It was his dream to link all of these states together with a network of roads, canals, and eventually railways. At the time, in 1820, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't travel in this country. You had to go on horseback. Right. Uh, and his dream was to have state-federal government cooperation in building these, this network of communication. It started to, to come true in the years that followed. And tens of thousands of Americans began to travel to move across state lines, uh, establish farms in the wilderness, uh, build banks and businesses. And, and in 1820, whereas the average American would name his state as his country, mm -hmm. by 1850, after the American system allowed all of this traveling and, and, and transfers, uh, the average American in the 20 nor northern, central, and western states called themselves Americans. And splitting up became unthinkable. Uh, farmers had customers and sources of supplies across state lines. Uh, so did banks. So did merchants. Uh, they had relatives across state lines, and they wanted to travel and see their relatives and vice versa. The, it was unthinkable to break up the union of these 20 states stretching from California to Maine. So many of his compromises were over the fundamental issue, the issue of slavery, Compromise of 1850, the Missouri Compromise, as you talked about. You know, he had a complicated relationship because he was a slave owner, yet against the institution. Is that right? Exactly. And he had no choice. He perceived that the country had no choice. And so these compromises that maybe we look back at today and say, well, he was just forestalling the inevitable or he was allowing for slave interests to persist at the time. And I mean, that's not an accurate way to look at it. Well, what most people forget is the 10th Amendment. Slavery was not in the Constitution. Slavery was a state issue. State law in Kentucky, where uh, Henry Clay lived, uh, did made it a felony to for any slave owner to emancipate his slaves. Same held true in Virginia. Washington had slaves, yet hated slavery. Remember, slavery went back to the beginning of the 18th century. And in the early 1700s, England depended on the slave trade for, for its revenues. And it shipped tens of thousands of slaves to the Caribbean to pick uh, the sugar islands, to mm -hmm. pick sugar cane, plant quick sugar cane. Well, they didn't need any more slaves. They were flooded with slaves. So Queen Anne, good Queen Anne, as she was called, started dumping slaves into Virginia. In 1715, Virginians, the tobacco plantation owners, petitioned Queen Anne to stop sending slaves. They didn't want them. A, they couldn't speak English. B, they were unskilled, which was fine for sugarcane planting and, and, and harvesting, but not for tobacco. Tobacco takes a skilled worker to plant, harvest, and treat. Queen Anne refused. Uh, we fast forward to the 1770s. Two generations later, the slaves are a fact of life. George Washington, as a little boy, grew up with slaves. He couldn't emancipate them. Yeah. And now you had hundreds of thousands of them with only one, if any, skills. They were a huge burden. Uh, Washington had 200, no, 325 slaves. One-third were babies. What was he going to do? <laughs> throw them out? One-third were crippled and elderly. He can't th throw them out. They couldn't work. They were a huge burden. But there was no solution now. You had hundreds of thousands of slaves in the South with no cities, 
no manufacturing plants, no place for them to have apprenticeship programs, no place for them to go. The road out of one plantation went to the beginning of the road into the next. All there was for them was unskilled labor, and no one knew what to do, not Washington and certainly not Henry Clay. All they could do, Henry Clay had about a dozen slaves, all they could do was treat them as kindly as possible as house servants, in effect. And that's what Henry Clay did and, and most other people like him. And he was one of the founders of the American Colonization Society, uh, which wanted to help the freed slaves of the North who were treated as badly by society as some of the slaves in the South. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't go to school. They were deprived of all their rights, yet they were free. Right. Unless we think that running the House of Representatives or being an important senator, and he was senator and representative at the same time, by the way. At, he, one, at one point. Yeah, yeah, which is very funny. Unless we think it was easier today because they were all the landed gentry, they were, mo, mo, they were of similar backgrounds, you know, things might seem to be more diverse today. You write about the insanity of the house, you know, Randolph's dogs on the floor, which when I was reading it, I thought it meant his acolytes. No, this representative literally brought his hunting dogs onto the floor. So it this was, was bedlam. A, yeah, it was bedlam. And was it just through personal skill, standing taller than most, being a rough-hewn man <laughs> who was a take-charge guy that Henry Clay was able to herd these interests? And also a lot in common with especially the Westerners uh, who had all set out, as he did, from uh, cities in the East. He, he grew up in Richmond and moved into the frontier country. Lexington had just become a—I mean, Kentucky had just become a state. Uh, Lexington was a small town when he got there. Uh, and uh, a whole group of Westerners had moved out into Tennessee, Kentucky, as these became states— and their interests were pretty much the same as those of Henry Clay. So he had them on his side, and he built a loyal following behind him. And at times when he explained how uh, a little, if you give a little here, you can get a little there, uh, these, these people who benefited from compromising became his followers yes. and, and believed in him and recognized that... Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to give a little here if I want to get anything. When we think about the lack of compromise today, why is that? This is, this is the idea I got from your book. Some of it is the personal skill of the leader, certainly. Some of it is the tradition, or I should say the necessity of the time. Without compromise back then, there would be no United States. The right. stakes are not that high now. But I also think the actual rules of the Senate and House might make it harder for compromise now. Filibuster... Uh, I disagree with you. Okay. They could filibuster then, and they could filibuster in the House, actually, in those days. Okay. Uh, you have a group of isolated little men and women, a so-called Freedom Caucus or Shutdown Caucus, yeah. as it's called. One guy who <laughs> lives behind a cactus tree in Arizona uh, claims that, and, and this is a quote by this guy, decisions on the federal level don't represent the will of the people. Well, uh, this little desert rat has never been to, to Philadelphia, Who is to Boston. Uh, Who is I, I don't want to mention his name. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's not been to Chicago, to Philadelphia, to Boston, to New York, to, to, to the big cities. He's never set foot in those cities. How does he have the gall 
to claim to know the will of the people. Mm-hmm. He's talking about a, a few desert rats. And this guy from South Carolina, Mulvaney, mm-hmm. it's no coincidence that he, he's uh, in this uh, group of shutdown people. South Carolina was the state that fired the first shots in the Civil War. Yeah. Now, these men... Always the first to, to yeah. put up their hands for secession. These men and women from these little tiny areas uh, who want to control the, the majority of these people, they're akin to Nazis and communists. That's how the Nazis took over in the Weimar Republic, this little group with a little power to shut down the whole uh, 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 National Assembly. So during Clay's time, were there no such, there wasn't a faction of 15 to 20 percent? Absolutely. Clay, okay, so but what did Clay he do with shut them, them down. How because did he do he, it? He wouldn't let, give them the floor. Right. Boehner did not now use Now there's too power. much freedom. Boehner never gave up his uh, link to this uh, rural area north of, of, of Cincinnati uh, he believed as speaker that he still represented those people. The, pro- the thing is, when you become speaker, you lose your vote and you lose the right to debate. Mm. You become speaker of all of the entire House. You become a representative of all of the people of the United States. You no longer represent your district. Well, during my lifetime, I don't know about during your lifetime, it seems that the speaker has been inherently partisan. But it wasn't like that for Clay? Only when it came to national interests, mm-hmm. not to local interests. He would, uh, Clay would never give in to local interests. And we've had speakers, uh, well, you're younger than I, so you probably don't remember Sam Rayburn. No, uh, I don't. Tip, was, uh, Tip O'Neill was the first one I remember. Uh, but he, he worked as Democrat, and he worked very closely with Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, right. over eight years. And they got things done. Both represented all the people of the United States. Uh, unfortunately, I think our presidents have become more and more partisan, uh, as has the speakers. We just simply have to get away from that. I'm not quite sure how we do it. We can hope that the new speaker, Ryan, he's showing signs of wanting to do that. Says the right thing, at least. We have to give him a chance now and see if he can do it. And what about the idea that to be compromising is a weakness? I am uncompromising is either explicitly or implicitly said by all these candidates. How has it come to that? It's come to that through ignorance because to be able to compromise is to be intelligent. That's true, but I also think it's a great luxury of our age to say I'm uncompromising. It's an ability to see everybody's point of view and find the common ground, and that takes great intelligence, great knowledge. It's no coincidence that these little Nazis in the the, uh, Freedom Caucus also want to cut back on education. (laughs) They want the people to stay as ignorant as possible so that they can remain in power in their little fiefdoms, wherever they are, whether it's Arizona, California, parts of the South. Uh, That's always the way with these people. They want an ignorant and depend on an ignorant population. These guys now, even moderate, so-called moderate members of the Republican Party especially, fear getting primaried. They, they only fear attacks from their right flank. That, I don't think that was around during Clay's time. I mean, he didn't ever fear for re-election. He didn't have to. Yeah. But locally, most of these, these fellows today don't face much opposition mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Pew had a poll and they asked people the percent who say they liked elected officials who make compromises. 
56% of the American populace said they liked elected officials who made compromises. 39% said they liked those who stick to their positions. But at the polarized extremes, consistently conservative respondents, 63% said they want stick to their positions. Only 32% want compromises. And of the consistently liberal, 82 it was exact opposite. 82% want compromises. So I think this probably gets back to your idea of this small number, in the spe- specifically in the Freedom or the, uh, the Heck No Caucus. Well, uh, this goes back to the Nazis and communists. They didn't, yep. want, they, they didn't like compromise either. Hitler didn't like compromise. Stalin didn't like compromise. They want control. And they don't care what the majority thinks. And they don't care about any kind of compromise. This is the way we do it. Historian Harlow Giles Unger has written 11 biographies of America's founding fathers, and he's out with a new one about the next generation, Henry Clay, America's greatest statesman. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be on your show. And that's it for the Saturday show that just is produced by producer Corey Wara and senior producer Joel Patterson. And we, I, Joel, Corey and I, We'll talk to you on Monday.